Welcome to Real Talk, a Wave Grant podcast. My name is Ana Verde. And my name is Amy Omar. And this is Real Talk, a Wave Grant podcast, a resource for emerging filmmakers making their first short films. Today's episode is about working with actors. So if we're following along in the process of our season, you've written your script, you've attached a producer, you maybe have department heads, you have some funding, you've prepped your short, you've storyboarded, you've done all of that, and now you find yourself on set and actors are looking at you and what do you do? How do you talk to them? And everyone has their own unique approaches to working with actors. There are many formal acting methods that have been studied and different actors train in those methods. But today we're just going to talk really personally about how Amy and I approach this. And then we also have a special guest to talk to us about their approach with working with actors. But before we introduce our fabulous guest, Amy, I'm curious about your process directing actors for Breaking Fast with a Coca-Cola. I have said this many times and I will continue to say it. I did not go to film school and I have had no formal training on how to be a director. So when I was directing Breaking Fast with the Coca-Cola and my other films, I feel like I kind of went into working with actors kind of instinctually. We spent some time over Zoom before we were actually on set. And like we would just talk as humans and we would talk about the story and the character. And I was always really curious about like what their feedback was on the script and how they felt about the character, who they felt the character was. I really wanted to create kind of this like safe environment where they felt like they could change some of the lines if they felt like they were not authentic to them or if they felt really unnatural. I wanted the actors to really bring themselves into the roles. And I feel like that's kind of the tone I've set in all three of the films that I've directed. I really go for a more naturalistic approach with the actors and how they perceive the characters. And I love talking backstory. My AD is always yelling at me because I'm just like doing deep character studies with my actors. My AD is like, we need to go. And I'm like, but what is this character like to eat? Let's dive into it. So I really like exploring that. So that's kind of has been my approach with actors. I definitely believe in not over rehearsing. Maybe we'll do like one rehearsal, but I'm not really interested in like over rehearsing at all. How about you, Anna? Yes. I hadn't directed actors for the screen before, but I studied theater directing. So on the contrary, in theater, there's a lot of rehearsal and a lot of prep with the actors beforehand. So when I got to the phase of the process of being on set, I was so excited to finally be with like actors because during prep and all of that initial technical stuff, talking about lenses and talking about setups. And all of that was like learning as I was doing. Whereas when I was talking to the actors, I was like, okay, I feel comfortable here. I know how to talk to them and how to connect with them. I think my entrance into writing has always been character first and people first. And I write women that I know. So it's really fun to kind of what you're talking about, Amy, like what the actors start building a foundation of trust with them and hearing how they connect to the character and how they see it and kind of meeting halfway and making sure that whatever then is performed is a true reflection of their work, that they feel proud of owning it and that they feel like they've brought something of the women in their lives or the people in their lives to the character, but also that it's aligned with what's on the page. I love writing. I think that's how I identify first, maybe before identifying as a director. And 
So I love doing like the text analysis with them. But I think one of the traps of that is falling into the pitfall of over rehearsing um, because you obviously want to make sure that they feel alive and that they feel like they can play in front of the camera and that they're still discovering things in real time. So I think that was definitely a balance that I was trying to strike. But I love working with actors and I'm really excited to introduce our guest. So today we have Sophie Barth. Sophie Barth's a Franco-American award-winning filmmaker, graduate of Columbia University and alumna of the Sundance Screenwriters and Directors Lab. Sophie's directorial debut, Cold Souls, with Paul Giamatti and Emily Watson, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and then traveled to more than 30 international film festivals and was theatrically distributed by Samuel Goldwyn and nominated for three Independent Spirit Awards. Her second feature, Madame Bovary, with Mia Wasikowska, Ezra Miller, and Paul Giamatti, premiered at the Telluride Film Festival and internationally at the Toronto and London Film Festivals, and went on to more than 20 international film festivals. She also directed a segment of Hopper Stories, produced by Didier Jacob, and commissioned by Arte for the first historical retrospective on Edward Hopper at the Grand Palais in Paris. Her third feature, The Pod Generation with Amelia Clark and Chiwetel Ejiofor, premiered opening night at the Sundance Film Festival in 2023. The film has already won the Alfred Sloan Prize and the Dolby Institute Fellowship Grant. It will be distributed theatrically in the U.S. by Roadside Attractions and Vertical Entertainment and by Universal Internationally and Lionsgate in the U.K. Sophie, welcome. Welcome, Sophie. So we have a lot of questions, but the first question that we'll dive into is over the course of your career, you've been a working director for many years now. How has your approach to working with actors changed, if it has changed? So I think that's like the dirty secret that every filmmaker is dying to know is how other directors are directing their actors. So true. <laughs> and it's always the question, like, how is Paul Thomas Anderson doing it? How is, it's almost this, you know, pornographic thing. Mm -hmm. You want to be a voyeur and you want to see how they do it. And I think the more you talk to really accomplished directors that have worked with A-list actors, the more you start hearing the same thing is don't get in the way. Mm. I feel actors are very sensitive, almost like horses, like they can feel who is riding, you know, who is in charge. And if they feel the energy is wrong, they're going to close up. If they feel the energy is right, they're going to go in a state of flow. And that's what you want in any artistic endeavor is reaching the state of flow where you don't know what that process is. I think it's a sort of magic moment where it's almost an hypnosis that you're fully connected with your emotions and you're giving the best of what you could in your craft. So that happens when you write, when you make music, when you're a filmmaker and the take is wonderful and you don't know why, but something happened and when you're an actor. And so I think a lot of actors feel very disturbed with overwhelming directors that give too many directions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's all basically in the writing. If the scene is well written, you've done your job, even if you're not a writer, if you're just a filmmaker, but you've selected a script that's well written, then the actor knows what to do. And then you give him space and then you're just there to guide and give nuances and range of emotions. Like I would say almost like a grand piano that you want to try variations on a piece of jazz or music. But the essential part is the writing. You cannot recover from a scene that's badly written. And sometimes, you know, in instinctively in your stomach, you're like, this scene is not that 
it's super well written, but I'm going to direct it in a way. It doesn't work. <laughs> if it's not well written, whatever you're going to do on set, it's just going to make it worse. And that scene is going to go to the garbage in the edit room. But then it's the thing, like, how do you know if it's well written? Are the emotions truthful? Is the comic timing hitting the right moment? All this you could work with actors, but I think it's really hard to recover from bad writing as a filmmaker. And what's your process with rehearsals? Like, how much do you rehearse or do you rehearse at all? So the thing is usually there's very little time to rehearse because the actors are jumping from one project to another and you're lucky to just have them. <laughs> and so it's usually ends like we have two, three weeks of rehearsal before the film during prep. So for instance, from an Bovary, we're trying to build chemistry between the cast and have them spend a lot of time together doing things that had nothing to do with the film. Like what? I like being in the south of France. <laughs> Just being there drinking uh, rosé. <laughs> no, like doing little tasks, you know, we we're all staying in this nice place that I wanted them to be like play music or be together or play cards or, you know, like develop a sense of camaraderie and try to break the barriers, but like not with all the characters because with between Mia Wysikowska and Henry Lloyd Hughes, who was playing the husband, they had no chemistry as characters. They had to like really not fall in love and have all this tension between them. So, so this for the prep, I absolutely didn't want them together. So the marriage would feel awkward. But for instance, between Ezra Miller and Mia, I wanted to have a very strong connection. So we spent time also were working on body language at that time because the posture is very different in the 19th century. The breathing women had corsets, so they couldn't breathe the same way. So we did a, some body work. But then I agree with you. I don't think over-rehearsing is good because then you lose the freshness of the story and the text for an actor. And I think a lot of actors don't like to ever rehearse for movies. They like to keep fresh. They don't want to chase the moment that they would have reached during rehearsal. And then they're going to spend their time on set trying to find this moment again. And it's become a memory. And so they're not in the moment because they're chasing the past. <laughs> so this you want to be careful that you actually rehearse maybe different things that are not exactly the scene. It could be the same you know, type of emotion, but you don't want to reproduce something. You want to keep novelty because the brain likes novelty. And I think actors like to be surprised and surprise each other. And sometimes it's like also tricking, you know, actors in telling something to one actor that the other actor is not expecting. And they get very surprised that this is happening and you capture that moment. So that's a bit manipulative. <laughs> but um, overall, it's just not get in their face, like trust them that they're going to do it and just don't be on their back. And especially when you're dealing with actors like Paul Giamatti or Mia that are so accomplished in their craft, they know what they're doing. They know why they're there. Right. They know why they picked that role. And I feel if you over talk about it, you also kill it. And not on set. I think yeah. none of those actors want to hear why they're there and why they're playing this. <laughs> it's right. too late in the process. Once they're it's in like the... you're already there, we have to shoot. <laughs> yeah. And I think the less you talk, the best I feel in a sense. And then if you have to talk a lot, there's a problem, I feel. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson was saying that in an interview where it was like, if I'm going to start to talk to Quaking Phoenix or Philip Sam Rothman in the morning and telling him this and this and this, I know it's going to be a, a terrible day. Like they know what they're going to do. You know, mm -hmm. you're just like a conductor. They know how to play the instrument. They've rehearsed their instrument. They're at the top of their craft. 
you're just a conductor, like in the darkness, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to make sure the symphony is going somewhere. But I think it's all about discretion. But I, then I'm saying this, but like other directors would say something completely different because there's no yeah. science behind it. There's no <laughs> science. That's right. I'm curious, Sophie, and you mentioned this a little bit about the actors that you've had the privilege of working with who have been maybe jumping from project to project. And how do you connect with actors who maybe have a totally different background than you or are coming to your film from a sort of maybe high profile talent or people who are much more experienced than maybe you were when you first started out? How do you navigate that relationship? Yeah, so that, that's the terrifying thing when you start directing because directing is such a expensive thing to be doing. So we're not like writers or musicians that can actually you know, work on their craft and have the 10,000 hours. To get to the 10,000 hours, you would have to shoot succession nonstop for <laughs> 15 years. Uh, but so that's the thing. And I think this is every director, even like the most accomplished director, you always feel your fraud on set the first day. You're like, why am I here? Why am I getting the privilege to direct this person who has done his 10,000 hours as an actor and I'm there and I'm hoping not to be an embarrassment. <laughs> but then it's going back to what you were saying, Amy, I think it's all about intuition. You know, it's a very intuitive craft and if you connect with the actor at, a, at an emotional level, an unverbal, unspoken way, there is a language that develops and they can read. Emily Watson was telling me, Whenever the director says cut, and you, I could see that on set, she stares at you. She's like, immediately stares at you. You don't have to say anything. She's reading in your face. Oh, God, that's terrifying. If you liked it or not. <laughs> and whatever you're going to say, she doesn't care. She got it from that first gaze after saying cut. She got the emotion. And she knows already if it, if it was good or she has to redo it or if you're happy or not, if you're lying. Sometimes you just pretend you're happy because you don't want to break the day. You just want to move on because you feel it's not going anywhere. But the actors know. They, and then if they lose this confidence in you and they feel you're bullshitting them or you're not being honest with the performance, they're going to start resenting you as a director because you have mm. to be honest. And sometimes you know it's not working in your stomach and you continue and it's, <laughs> it's actually terrible. But that's a mistake I think we do a lot as filmmakers. We want to believe it's good. There's a great say from Chabrol, mm. a great French filmmaker. He said, whoever laughs on set is going to cry in the editing room. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're having a great shoot and mm -hmm. you're having so much fun and you're enjoying, you're probably going to suffer later on because a lot is going to be a lot of crap. Yeah. And sadly, it's this thing. There's a moment of truth that on set, you're very excited by the experience. It's like a communal experience. It's very exciting to be on the set. It's a playful environment. And then you're alone in the edit room with the image, and then you see the truth of mm -hmm. where you're truthful to yourself, to your intuitions, where you're truthful to the actors, you know. And I think the really big actors, they know immediately if the director knows what he's doing. They can sense it. They have a, a sixth sense of are they in good hands. And all you have to show the first day is... Yes, you're in good hands. I know what I'm doing. There is a, an intention and there is a specificity to what I want from every scene. And if you don't have that, if you didn't do that homework, then probably the actors are going to lose faith very quickly. Well, I'm also curious because you worked on several features. How do you maintain that for like three weeks? Well, th there's this thing of flow. So the first few days are nerve wracking because you're like, I have to build that trust and I have very few days and they have to trust me. The worst that can happen to a filmmaker is not knowing what they want. 
And this is happening all the time. You have to know what you want from the scene. You have to know which emotion. It doesn't mean you can't change your mind and then say, okay, let's direct this scene. You have to be flexible. You also can be creative and say, no, okay, let's throw this to the garbage and let's do the scene differently. But if you don't have an intention and you're just trying things, <laughs> you lose completely the confidence that the actors put in you. This is something I understood from talking to those actors. They're very vulnerable. They're putting themselves out there. They have a hundred people looking at them. They're naked. They're mm -hmm. really naked. To put yourself there and open your soul and your sensibility to someone capturing this, you feel you owe them to do good work because they're very exposed. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I think, the job that exposes you the most because the camera can read through you. You know, that's why I was saying, like, Paul Gemat is a wonderful actor because you could film him reading the yellow pages that don't exist anymore, like, let's say, the, <laughs> the internet. <laughs> and he's interesting because something is happening like mm -hmm. this in inner life that the camera can see. So the camera knows. The camera is fully objective. It can read the soul of an actor. It can read the sensibility. It can read the face. And the actors know that. So once they give that, which is the great gift they're making mm -hmm. to us filmmakers, you have to honor that and know why you're doing this. It has to be purposeful. It has to say something about the character. This whole language, I think, is more something you develop in the preparation. If you don't have good prep time, you as a filmmaker, not necessarily with the actors, then it's going to be very hard on set to build that chemistry and that trust. And I think also 99% of directing is the casting. If you miscast, you're done. I mean, you can't recover from a, a, a mistake in casting. It doesn't mean the actor is not good. It could be the actor was not that part. He mm -hmm. wasn't right for that part. He would be right for another part. But that's your job as a filmmaker. And it's the hardest one because... Sometimes you don't know. Yeah, I mean, when you that's the great thing. When you do naturalistic films, small budget films, that you can actually audition. There's so many processes where you would see a thousand actors and you choose the one person that out of this thousand is something mm -hmm. that happened. The problem with the A-list actors is there's no audition. Yeah. So you really have to do a leap of faith and think, okay, even if it's this big name, is this the character? Is it going to be able to deliver that specific emotion uh, for that specific character? And that's something that is hard to develop as a skill because you do it so little. If you do one movie every three, four years, you know, how do you build that skill? But that's why I think you have to always try to get as many tapes as possible and do this exercise of casting the way we used to be, like mm -hmm. just be in a room or get the tapes of how many actors you can for all the roles, just to see the difference. You know, that's the beauty of humanity. We approach things all individually in such different ways. I recently directed a film and I went through an extensive casting process for this. We worked with a casting agent who sent me a lot of different audition tapes. And after I had narrowed down the audition tapes, I actually set up Zooms with each of them because it was all in LA and I was in New York. For some of the people, even if I liked their tape, once we Zoomed, I was like, this is not a fit. And you could tell right away sometimes I'm like, your audition maybe was good, but I don't think you really understand what I'm trying to go for. And that was really helpful. And I think a lot of people don't even have the privilege of even getting to do that step. Yeah. I mean, what they say usually, like if it's a naturalistic film and you're casting non-actors, just cast who the person is or would be, that's easier in a way because you're just casting the person almost. But then, yeah, when you go with professional actors, it's 
very easy to be lured by the celebrity. And then you're like, mm. oh, I'm casting. I have this wonderful name in my film. Well, it doesn't mean anything because if the name is not right for yeah, the character. exactly. And that's the thing with the agencies where they're like, this is the girl or this is the boy. And you have as a director to say no. Mm-hmm. Whoever this person is, how famous and how it's not going to be a good match. Everyone is going to suffer. But saying no is complicated because then you feel, are they going to help me to cast the rest of my film? Or as a young director, you get in those positions sometimes where you have to define yourself by the no mm-hmm. and saying no, but you're in no position to say no because exactly. you're no one. It's hard. Well, <laughs> yeah. I know I would love to talk about Cold Souls a little bit. I know for this film, you wrote the rule for Paul Giamatti and you had met him at the Nantucket Film Festival. Could you speak a little bit about that process, how you pitched the project to him? This was your first feature, so it was super impressive that you got such a big name for this film. Yeah, that was called beginners like (laughs) it never happened again like this Uh, but I wrote the screenplay for him after seeing American Splendor and I loved that movie so much and I felt no the actor had the soft desperation that he has and the voice and there's something about him that's so warm and desperate and relatable and human so I thought okay I'm going to write it for him and if I write it for him he's going to say yes (laughs) of course why not (laughs) so this was crazy me out of film school and then I wrote it and then I sent it to the Nantucket screenplay competition and I forgot about it and six months later I was in south of France actually they called me they're like you won so they flew me to Nantucket and this was really like a, a movie. Paul Giamatti was there to give an award to Alexander Payne for Sideways. And I was there to get my little award from my little screen. Amazing. <laughs> and so I turned to him and I said, I wrote this for you. It's written, Paul Giamatti. <laughs> I think at that point he thought I was really crazy. And then we <laughs> shared about our dreams because the screenplay had a lot of dreams. I had a dream journal and he had a dream journal. So we exchanged about writing our dreams and creativity. And he told me, well, I want to read it. I'm very curious. And then we all went back to New York and his wife is a producer they have a production company and they called me on Monday they're like we're very curious to read that screenplay and I was in my pajamas fixing the screen <laughs> so stressful <laughs> thinking I'm, I can't give it like this I have to fix it yeah. I have to. they're like no no we just want to read what you have like we're very curious so I went and I brought the screenplay to their office and then two days later they called back and they say Paul wants to be in it and he wants to produce it And so that was it. That was the first uh, film. So that was the amazing news. And then when we looked at the calendar, he was booked for a year. He had to do John Adams. Uh, He had a bunch of films. He was like at the top of his in-demand phase. (laughs) And so then I waited for a year and he said, do you want to recast? I can still produce it or do you want to recast? I was like, no, I don't want to recast at all. (laughs) No, 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 I have you. But I went to the Sundance Lab. So it was actually great because I went to the Sundance Lab. I worked on the script. I had so many advisors. I was able to shoot some scenes during the directing lab in the, oh, in the summer. And so that's a great exercise because you direct some scenes. As a first-time director for a feature, it was very stressful to suddenly have a big name, a good budget course, yeah. for a first feature. I got so many amazing editors, advisors, writers, and then the script just got better and better. And uh, I was super prepared <laughs> after a year waiting for Paul. And then luckily, Emily Watson came on board because Paul is just this magnet that yeah. I think every actor wants to act with Paul Giamatti because he's a genius at acting. I mean, I get the sense that like he brings this calm and warmth to set. Like I imagine that's what he's like. I don't know if that's actually true. He's but... actually really funny. 
He's a <laughs> very funny person. And actually, this is the counterexample of because we were laughing so much on that set. And then in the editing room, the material is really good. Yeah. He, he's very good. But he's super professional. Like he can do anything. I think he can do Shakespeare, Chekhov, any classics. And then he can do slapstick comedy, action. Mm. He's the most versatile actor. Like, I feel like all those British actors that are trained mm -hmm. for the craft, mm -hmm. they're not trained to be movie stars. Yes. And Paul is someone like this. The craft and the control he has on what he's doing and the soulfulness and just, I don't know any other actor like him, you know. And he's also very generous with first-time filmmaker. Of course. Trusting this process. And I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> the first day of shoot, he must have seen my face. I was like, how am I here? <laughs> Why am I here? What am I doing? I just want to disappear and be a little mouse and leave the set and never come back. <laughs> I mean, I did notice in the film, there are a lot of these montages where he's like doing these little actions. They're very detailed actions that those actions tell a story in themselves. How much of that was you directing him or like his instinct or you were working on it together? So Paul really doesn't like improvisation. He hates improvisation. Oh, that that yeah. is actually shocking. Yeah, he wants the script and he wants to be prepared for because I think he's such a hardworking mm. actor. He wants to be in control and know what he's going to be doing. And I thought the opposite. I thought, oh, we're going to improvise so many funny scenes. He was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to improvise. I want the script. So most of it was written, but of course he adds, you can't explain what it is. It's comic timing, like the way he's going to answer is going to fall exactly at the moment uh, it should fall in the scene to create awkwardness or um, strange silence or be very neurotic. Or He plays New York neurotic really, really yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he brings like so much intelligence. I think it's emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's what he has at a very high level to know exactly where to be emotionally in a scene and also self-derision. He can make fun of himself. You know, he has no issue yeah. being ridiculous. Or he doesn't take himself seriously at all. And that's a big sign of intelligence. Which is not common for a lot of actors. Yeah, I mean, you have the ego gets in the way. And that's what I think stifles a lot of really big actors is like the ego takes too much place. And you're not seeing the character, you're seeing the mm -hmm. ego of that actor. And someone like Paul or even me, I was Ikovska. Like I was very lucky. All the actors I worked with, Emily Watson, Shiutele Jofor, Emilia, they're not actors that are doing it for the ego. I mean, of course, in any artistic endeavor, there is we all have an ego, but like they're doing it for the craft. Yeah. This wasn't your last collaboration with Paul Giamatti. You worked with him again. So what is that relationship building like for you with actors? Is that something that you set out to do is sort of like, I want to continue to work with Paul or did that just happen randomly? Can you talk a little bit about your collaborative relationship with him? No, with Paul, I wanted to have him in all the films. And I, <laughs> when I wrote The Pod Generation, I also had him in mind, but he was very busy on billions. So sadly, I couldn't get him. But yeah, I would love to work with Paul in every movie. I just understand his sensibility. I don't know if you've seen The Holdovers. but Oh, I did. We were just talking about it. I so really wonderful. loved it. I hope he gets an Oscar because it's absolutely a shame that he didn't get an Oscar for Sideways. He's a little like subtle, but that's why he's so good. He's so relatable. Sometimes those actors, they get overlooked for some reason. Yeah. So another actor I love working with is Michael Stuhlberg. I worked mm. with him. And he has a small scene in Cold Souls and I did the short on Edward Hopper with him. He's such a chameleon that you forget it's Michael Stuhlberg because he's yeah. so good. He becomes so the character. Good. 
And he's one of the most versatile and talented actors out there, by far. His technique, everything. But people are not going to think, oh, Michael Schubert, he's incredible. Mm. He's one yeah. of the most exquisite actor to work with and precise and human. But that's the thing. It's this quality that because they're putting their ego aside and they're just about the craft and being the character, then you forget who is behind. They're also both such accessible humans. You see them and you're like, I know that person. They don't look manufactured. They just feel like real people in every performance I see either of those two actors in. Yeah, Michael Stuhlberg in A Serious Man, he's incredible. Yeah. It's just like the amount of talking about self-desperation mm -hmm. and uh, humor and uh, not taking himself seriously and still like conveying all these very profound emotions is pretty amazing. And when you're not actively in production on a project, are you still building relationships with these actors or other actors? Do you have like your pool of actors who you would love to work with in the future? Yeah, I'm obsessed with actors. I'm constantly looking at performances <laughs> yeah. and I just love, I, I feel like they're doing something that none of us can do, which mm -hmm. is conveying human emotions and bringing that to other humans. I think it's an incredible job and I think they're very vulnerable and they're putting themselves out there. And the life of an actor is rejection. For you to make it, like so many actors made it really late or or they make it early and then they got forgotten. And so 99% of their life is dealing with rejection, which you don't have as a writer, director. You have rejection, but you can always write something else. As an actor, if you're not at the right place at the right moment, even if you have the talent, maybe no one discovers you. Mm -hmm. And it's really heartbreaking because I feel, yeah. I don't know, I have a very specific affection for actors. I feel they, yeah. you know, they're doing a cathartic job for society. If we didn't have actors to process those emotions for us, we would all be at war all the time. We would have so to get true. those emotions some way mm -hmm. and they're doing yeah. this job for us. It's a sort of therapy. So I'm always looking at new actors and, you know, I love like when you talk to casting directors and they show you the tapes coming out of Juilliard <laughs> and you see the new talents, you know, like Michael Sturbach yeah. came from there, Adam Driver, Jessica Chastain, and then you see the new generation and you see the raw talent of some actors and you're like, how is this possible that this actor is taking all the oxygen in the room and it's just mm. the presence. It's a miracle. It's like, why? Why? Some people have it. They just have it. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And like, I remember getting tapes from Madame Bovary of like Emma Stone, you know, no. like she was just starting. <laughs> and, uh, and like look you, at her now. Yeah. And like, you look at those tapes and you're like, wow, he was there. Like, all the talent. It's funny to see the trajectory of every single actor in like different ways. But it's heartbreaking when you have really, really good actors or like young actors that you feel have so much talent, but they weren't in the right place and they didn't get the chance. And it's right. very random and unfair. Yeah. I think also with actors, I mean, even just putting ourselves in their shoes and the role that they play in the lifespan of a project, they embody the role, they're in the film. Without them, there is no film. I mean, the majority of people outside of probably a filmmaking circle go see movies because of who's in it and not who made it necessarily. And I'm curious, do you involve your actors past the point of production? Like, do you involve them in post at all? Or Never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me neither. No, I haven't either. And I've th and yeah. you think about it, but actors, because they're so vulnerable, I think they look at the project from such a different angle when they're watching themselves. That's why I'm so curious about someone like Bradley Cooper, who is able to 
direct himself and then be in the edit room so cutting crazy. himself. Yeah. Because for sure there is a narcissistic component that you're going to linger more on yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think you should never, ever have an actor in the edit room. Because first, the edit room is a mess, you know, in terms of the chaotic process of a film clicking together. I remember because my husband worked on Blue Valentine and we've seen so many iterations of the film and they cut that film for a year and a half. And the film wasn't working for the longest time. And suddenly it clicked and it worked and it's a beautiful film. But what happened in that edit room for all of this to come together, you can't explain what it is. But from an actor's perspective, if they would see this, they'll be like, okay, the film is a disaster. Yeah, right. But then when they see the end result, they have no idea what the, <laughs> it's the so, battle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so true. And like sometimes that's when you're in the editing room, that's when you see like the bad performances and you're like, okay, we're yeah. going to cut this. Sometimes it's just surgery. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. just like taking a fraction of a second of something that works. And no one would ever know like what didn't work. And you have to have the things that don't work for the other things to work, for sure. It's not an exact science, otherwise it will be robotic people making films. Of course. And also like in the material, you have scenes that you thought were going to work. And then once you put them together, they're not needed. Or you didn't need all these lines, all the emotions are on the face. You can cut all the dialogue. But it's a process that I don't think any actor should go through that pain of... You know, maybe for them as a craft, it would be interesting to see. And I'm sure actors who are directors have that learning curve of seeing. But then I don't know if it's that good then to go back and act with this pressure of thinking what is going to yeah. be in the edit room. It's better they're just in the flow and they do it and then let the editor and the director, you know, suffer and try to make a film work. Because that's the number one thing. You're in the edit room and you have a rough cut and it doesn't work. Yeah. And I think every filmmaker wants to shoot themselves and cry <laughs> and realize they just let down everyone. They betrayed everyone. This is not working. <laughs> oh, yes. And then so true. five or six months later, you finally have a movie. Mm. You know, But it's a miracle when it all comes together. I definitely feel really protective of my actors on set. I don't really want them to know anything that's happening behind the scenes. If there is any stress amongst the crew or we're having camera or lighting issues or we're behind schedule. I just, my instinct is always to tell them everything is good and I don't want them to know. And yeah. I don't know if that's the right or wrong answer, yeah, 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 but I just, I, I'm like, you have one job and your job is to bring this character to life. And I don't want to think about anything else besides being this yeah. character. Yeah. They have to be in their flow and they, they feel the tension. They know when a day is not going yeah. well. But like, for instance, I never let uh, actors watch a take at the monitor, you know, because mm. now you can rewatch. Yeah. I mm -hmm. never let them watch. And they never ask. I mean, I think very professional actors that they know the director is going to say no. But uh, I don't want them to be self-conscious. Yeah. I don't want them to start to see themselves as the character. They have to be the character. So if you break that and you let them come to the monitor and start rewatch, replay, you're done as a director. They're going to take over. You know, there's also a little bit of a power game. You have to be in charge and you have to decide that it's better for them. Like children playing. It's, it's better true. you play and, you know, mommy and daddy are paying the bills and doing the boring types. Just enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it is because it's so taxing anyways. Mm -hmm. They need to give, you know, all these things. And the brain doesn't have room for all the logistics and the stress and the and if you know that if you're stressed you don't do good work you know you have to be re relaxed and um, 
unless you're Daniel De Lewis and you need to be method actor 100% and Gosh. suffer so much. Yeah. To- <laughs> or Christian Bale. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about building that trust with the actors so that they can play and trust that everything behind the camera is going fine. You see it happen when you're on a set or whatever, when you see the actor suddenly realize that it's mayhem and chaos and they start to feel insecure and it's just not a good vibe, like to put it in the most simplest of terms. So much of what's happening in front of the camera has to just be like good energy. I think, Amy, you're exactly right in that, like having a protective space for them so that they feel comfortable delivering on the part of the process that they're meant to deliver in the way that the editor is going to deliver the part of the process that they're meant to deliver in the way that the colorist is going to deliver the part of the process that they're going to deliver and so on and so forth. And as filmmakers, we get the privilege of getting to help everyone deliver their best work. So there's a technique we've developed with Andre that I think is really nice on set because Andre, my husband, directs Succession and he's like at another stratosphere of his career, (laughs) (laughs) but he happens to shoot my film. But something we've been doing in all the movies is when we rehearse the scene, we rehearse for the entire crew. Everyone Mm. is invited. We do one rehearsal in closed sets, so just the DP and me and the actors. And once we've nailed it, and this can take as long as possible. This is before the DP decides how he's going to light the scene. And Andre likes to be very natural with the lighting. So we rehearse when we feel we have it for that specific scene, the day we're shooting, actually, not the day before. Then we call in the crew and then everyone gets to see it. Mm. And then it's really nice because then the crew feel they're part of the creative process because there's nothing more awful, I think, for people not knowing what we're doing. They're on a set for 12 hours a day and they have no idea what we're doing and the director is doing his kind of neurotic thing and they're not (laughs) part of this process. And I think if you open the process and everyone sees where the camera is going to go, how it's going to be lit, where the sound is going to be, it's helpful for the makeup person, for the costume person. They feel they're part of this team and it becomes at one point like sailing. We're all in this boat together. We're going to sail together. And then you achieve this very beautiful energy on set, which I think on all my sets, I can say, (laughs) even if the films are uneven or whatever, we always had really beautiful energy on sets where there's a sense of calm and a sense of creating and this joy of creating something, of Mm -hmm. uh, being together as a team. Uh, So this, I think, is a really nice technique to bring everyone together. And then the actors like it because they also feel they're part of a communal experience. It's not just them, the trailer, going back. There is like a sense of sharing. And it's magic when they're doing it and it's great and they can feel the energy like almost a theater. Yeah. So they can feel everyone is like gasping or seeing the scene is great and they get their feedback from an audience like this and then you shoot it. And so I think that's a nice thing to try. It is. I mean, I even coming in as a director, like I love looking around at my set, at my crew and just they work like clockwork. And it's so magical to see everyone there. They're doing their thing. They're working on their craft. And it's a really beautiful moment. We actually, on one of my sets, there was a really powerful scene where the actress, she got really caught up emotionally in the scene and was crying. And after we cut the scene, like all the crew was crying too. Because a lot of people had been watching it on a monitor. And I was like, that was a really beautiful moment. As a director, I live for moments like that. It's not just me and the actor, it's everyone is all together. And we're all just like caught up in this emotion and we feel the energy. Because if the crew is feeling that energy, I do believe it's going to impact their work as well and how they decide things. And it's all the flow of energy. It's important. 
we have another question for you. So we talked a lot about the features that you've worked on, but what about your previous work before you were directing features? Yeah, I made the three shorts. One was called Happiness, and that's the one that made me sign with WME. And so I got my agent. He was at Sundance. And it was about a woman who buys a box of happiness and she has no, no idea what to do with happiness. So she returns the box. <laughs> and we shot in Brighton Beach and in our apartment in the East Village. Mm. We were like students who were broke. We had asked to favors to everyone. But the actress was amazing. She was Elzbieta. What was her last name? I forgot. She was the muse of Andre Vajda in the 60s. Oh, wow. I'm going to destroy her last name, so I shouldn't. But sadly, she passed. So she used to be Andre Vajda's muse in all those new wave mm -hmm. movies in the 60s. And I had seen her and she's an incredible Polish actress. And so she's playing almost a silent role. It was all about her emotions and this box and the absurd setting of that little story. But that was, you know, a great uh, lesson is like, it's really about the casting. You cast an actress like this, she delivered something beautiful. And it was a very simple short film made with no money. But just her presence and the acting was strong enough that that got me an agent and allowed me to set the tone of Cold Souls. Because Cold Souls was very much in the same tonality, very absurd, funny, but a little bit heartbreaking. And so what you want to show as a filmmaker is the tonality in which you're going to be working, because that's the soul of your movie making. You know, like everyone can direct an episode of a TV show if it's been cast and already all set up. You come in and you're babysitting actors. But like <laughs> showing your voice, like showing what is the tonality you're going to work in? What kind of filmmaker are you? What is the specificity of your voice? That's what they want to see before signing you. And so the short films are very important for that, not to make a generic short film. Everyone can make a technically... 100% super impressive short film. It's not difficult today. We have technology, we have great actors, we have great DPs, but it's more like the sensibility. That's why I, I was teaching a class at Columbia, a short film workshop actually, and I was telling the students like, what do you want to be in terms of voice? What is your mm. voice? What do you have to say about the human experience, about our journey on this planet? Like you must have a way to say it differently that is very personal and that's the quintessential thing exercise for short films just show who you are in five minutes you know it's a beautiful exercise and it's really difficult it is really difficult that's kind of the beauty of short films too is because you're only given a few minutes and it's like can you say what you need to say yeah and then you see like when you do two three short films there's a thematic i think as a filmmaker you're chasing the same idea over and over like writers, unless you want to do like really big studio stuff and just work in the industry as more a Helmer, what I call a Helmer. <laughs> I find it really funny in variety or like the Helmer. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to be a writer director and you want to explore themes that are interesting to you, you're going to realize after a while, even in the films you like the most, uh, you realize there is a continuity. There is a, a thread. There is something that is bothering you enough in your life that you're going to want to explore that for the rest of your life in different ways. Like if you look at Paul Thomas Anderson, all his movies are about, I mean, most of them, they're about a father-son relationship that's very complicated or like a relationship that's subverted. And it's the power dynamic is not what you thought. They're mm -hmm. all about that phantom thread, the master, there will be blood. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's going after. He's going after 
a very complex relationship that I don't know if he had with his father. But you could see the thread, you know, in Bergman, you can see the thread mm -hmm. of the female characters being so strong and so in charge and the male characters being lost and at the mercy of the power of this incredible woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All his films are about that, shame, persona, the silence. And it, sometimes it's hard to see it, but it's there, it's yeah, under it's the layers. And it's what keeps them making those movies because they would never get the answer to the, this issue. It's a soul-searching issue that you can yeah, never answer. Completely. I mean, I always say I feel like so much of writing and filmmaking, it's its own form of therapy. It's like there's some part of the human condition that you have not solved yet. So you're going to solve it through your writing and your filmmaking. Yeah. And you're just going to keep doing it over and over again. Or you're not going to solve it. Or you're, not, or you're yeah. never going to solve it. <laughs> it's like a dog chasing its tail over and over and over again. You're just kind of circling I feel so lucky to get to have spent all of this time with you and, and so I feel like a sponge just like soaking in all of your pearls of wisdom, Sophie. I'm curious if you had one final word of advice to give someone making their first short, what would that be? I would say keep it truthful. <laughs> truthful to you and truthful to the actors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. To our lovely listeners, please note that we will be taking a brief pause for the holiday season. Our team is excited to come back in 2024 with the rest of our episodes. This is Real Talk, a Wave Grant podcast, is produced by Taylor Wildenhouse, Ana Verde, and Amy Omar. Mixing by Lonnie Rowe Wade. Theme song by Alana Meal. Executive producers are Jennifer Westfall and Joe Plummer. Presented to you by Wavelength.